before we engage this evening's subject matter, I wanted to uh, formally invite all of you listeners out there, if you are uh, within range of the Diocese of Santa Rosa, to come this Saturday to, I think, a pretty important event, a day put together by the Department of Religious Education within the Diocese of Santa Rosa, a day where we are uh, going to be given the opportunity to reflect more deeply into uh, this call that we have to forgive one another. Um, I've pulled up a letter written by the bishop there in Santa Rosa, Bishop Vasa, and so what I thought I would do is just um, read this brief letter. This is what he has to say. Uh, Dear Congress participants, we warmly welcome you with joy to the annual Santa Rosa Religious Education Congress. This is a day to assist those involved with the handing on of the Catholic faith at all levels. The theme of this year's Congress is Nourishing the Gift of Forgiveness. In Luke 15, verses 11 to 32, the compassionate father of the prodigal son celebrates his lost son's return. He ran to his son, embraced him, kissed him, and celebrated with a great feast. Our Heavenly Father embraces us whenever we return to him in love. The divine mercy of God is lived out in our lives, especially in the sacrament of reconciliation. Jesus breathed the Holy Spirit on the apostles. He said, Receive the Holy Spirit whose sins you forgive are forgiven them, and whose sins you retain are retained. This Congress is a great opportunity to not only nourish your faith and understanding of this sacrament, but also to take advantage of the gift of confession available throughout the day. We welcome speakers from our own diocese as well as other dioceses such as Douglas Bushman, Hector Molina, Father Gary Thomas, and uh, the world-renowned Dr. Ray Garendi, and others. May Mary, the Mother of Mercy, always keep you and yours close to the heart of her Son. And penned Bishop Vaza, as well as the Director of Religious Education there, uh, Deacon Dennis Purification. So, there you have it. Uh, this Saturday uh, at Cardinal Newman High School from 8 to 5, a wonderful opportunity to kind of go on a, a retreat day. Uh, so please do take advantage of that. Um, yours truly will be there as well, uh, presenting a few workshops. So um, don't miss this opportunity. For more information, you can go to santarosacatholic.org. So with that, let us open up with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joel Kraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It's great to be with you another Tuesday evening, reflecting into the great ancient Christian thinkers. Uh, we are coming out of the golden age of doctrine this evening and into this post-Nicene era. And so you know, what does that mean for us? Well, let us first take a step back and you know, ask ourselves, where have we been so as to better understand where we are going? Off the top, we, we talked about the apostles, and out from the apostles, we took up the apostolic fathers, the gospel's first echo, we called them. Uh, those figures included St. Clement of Rome, St. Ignatius of uh, Antioch, and St. Polycarp of Smyrna. Within those men, we saw uh, a great love for the faith in which they laid their life down for the faith. And we call these the Apostolic Fathers because these men, if they did not know the Apostles themselves, they lived in their immediate aftermath. And so uh, these three men were very important for us in, in getting our study going on the Church Fathers. And so then we took up the pre-Nicene Fathers, 
where we looked at the church finding a voice. Uh, these men included the likes of Tertullian, St. Cyprian of Carthage, Origen, uh, St. Irenaeus of Lyon, a great voice, right? And of course, St. Justin Martyr. And then we got into the Nicene era, the golden age of doctrine, this age that we've been in over the last few months. These figures included the likes of St. Athanasius, the Cappadocian Fathers, St. Ambrose of Milan, who we talked about uh, last week, as well as St. John Chrysostom. Now, some place St. John Chrysostom, the golden mouth in the era that we are about to begin now, but we went ahead and put him in the fourth century. So, collectively, what we've done is, as we've treated the Church Fathers, we have grown to see the importance of their role in building up the Christian Church. What's more is that in every era, the Fathers had their disagreements and debates, and sometimes even called each other names. Huh? I mean, we actually see this in our figure tonight with St. Jerome. I mean, he suspected St. Augustine of being proud, conniving, and even insincere. And the thing of it is, he told him as much. So what we have here is, yes, men who disagreed, men who, who did not always get along, yet men who at the same time would strive to live for the divine. The fathers represent a church, united because it is something divine, yet united only with difficulty because it is something human, uh, suffering the effects of original sin. It's important in the end for us to see that the fathers really show forth the richness of the Christian faith. And as I have each and every Tuesday as we embark upon this study of the church fathers, I have John O'Hare with me. So John, it is great to have you with me as we begin to take up this, uh, this post-Nicene era. Thank you, Joe. And now, John, as I talk about this post-Nicene era, I do want to be careful not to put this within the context of a kind of twilight for uh, the fathers, because certainly that is not what this era is about in many ways. I know we've kind of strayed away from talking about greats, you know, yeah. but uh, when you look at the men we're going to talk about here in the near future, certainly tonight, uh, St. Jerome, St. Augustine, St. Leo. Now, he's known as St. Leo the Great, right? St. Benedict. I mean, we are talking about great, great men, no doubt. And they certainly lay the foundation for a time in the Church that's going to be very difficult due to barbaric invasions. That's for another week, another time. Tonight, this evening, John, we are about St. Jerome. And by some, a bit of a controversial figure because of this cross he had to deal with, uh, his temper, his anger, which we'll certainly talk about. But what can we say, John, about St. Jerome as it relates to maybe more of his biographical information and what that means for what he uh, contributes to the Church? Going to your first remarks, this is the first saint we're going to talk about for a while that didn't have to deal with Arianism. Times yes. they are a-changing. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, St. Uh, Jerome, his birth dates, as we've had in the past, are kind of unknown, Benedict the Sixteenth says 347. Uh, Butler says 342. Doesn't make any difference. He mm -hmm. was born about that time. He definitely died uh, on September the 30th, 420. So he lived to be somewhere in the late 60s uh, when mm -hmm. he died. Um, he was born in, uh, they're not sure where he was born. It was in the east side of the Adriatic Sea, near Croatia, maybe go up a little farther to the north in that area. And he had a very good father. Uh, brought him up into the Christian faith. This time we have a father, not a mother, who was yeah, a very yeah. strong influence <laughs> on his son. 
And he went to Rome rather early. Uh, how early? It depends upon when he was born. We, th- we think we have a time when he went to Rome. It might, he might have been 13, 14, I don't know. Yeah. But he went and he had um, a pagan grammarian named Donatus. That was his tutor for quite a few years. And he learned Latin. His native tongue was Illyrian. I've never heard of Illyrian mm-hmm. until I read about him. Now, he took up kind of a wild life. I mean, not I'm not saying sexually wild, but he was into... Um, vanity. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a big shot, and that's what I gathered out of this. Mm-hmm. Then he met uh, a good friend of his whose name was Bonosis, and they went to Trier in France, and there they became very Christian, the two of them. They were there for several years, and then they came back to uh, a place called Aquileia. I'm not sure where that is. I suspect it is kind of in northern Italy, maybe towards the Adriatic Sea. I don't want to say Venice, but I'm, to me, that's about where it is. They were quite holy, and Jerome, with his mouth, I call him the Belmar of, yeah. the, of this era, <laughs> yeah. Catholic Belmar, but anyway, he was, because of his mouth, he got into some controversy, and they thought it was a good idea to leave town, and they went to Turkey. Now, Bonosis didn't get that far. He stopped at an island and never did leave, and he became kind of a hermit. Jerome went to Antioch, and there he uh, became involved with a, a very learned gentleman, uh, Apollinarius, and he learned not only Latin, but Greek and some Hebrew. Mm-hmm. And then there was some controversy, and he went and he became a hermit. From where I can gather, he might have been in Iraq. And um, there he had a dream. And in this dream, he wrote this in a letter. Christ was saying, who are you? And Jerome says, well, I'm a Christian. No, you're not. You're a Ciceronian. Yes. But anyway, the dream was kind of a life-changing thing for, for Jerome. And he began to become extremely Christian, you know, mm-hmm. Ciceronian, you know, I, I'm more interested in Latin literature than I really am in the Catholic Church. But anyway, <laughs> he became even further into the Catholic Church, and he became a, a hermit for a while, similar to John Chrysostom. And then he came back to Antioch, and he attended lectures, and he continued his knowledge of Greek and Hebrew. And then uh, he was ordained a priest in 379. Now, at this point, he was about 37 years old, and he was ordained a priest... There, he, he goes to Constantinople, he meets Gregory of Nazianzen, as well as Gregory of Nyssa, wow, and he becomes an, an admirer of Origen. And then he gets an invitation from Pope St. Damasus to come to Rome to discuss various controversies in Antioch. He goes there, and Damasus asks him to become his personal secretary, which he does. I mean, Damasus recognizes talent. So for two years, he is his personal secretary, and Damasus says, you know, I, uh, I know you know a little bit of Latin, so why don't you, we have a Latin New Testament, but uh, I'm not too sure just how good it is. I'd like you, we've got plenty of Greek. We've got really good Greek manuscripts. Take these Greek manuscripts and translate them into Latin for us. And Jerome does that, and I think he does it in a fairly short order. Also at this time, he meets some women, wealthy women, who are trying to lead a holy Catholic life, and he becomes their spiritual director. In two years, at 384, Pope St. Damasus dies. Now at this point, Jerome, who has a mouth that, gets him into a lot of trouble. He also, there's pagans in Rome, and he has words with them. At the death of Pope St. Damasus, it's wise to leave Rome and get out of town again. So this time he goes to the Bethlehem, Jerusalem, goes down to Egypt, comes back. Some of the women come with him. One of them is Paulina and her daughter, and another one of the women, St. Marcellus, she, she remains in Rome and uh, does not come. But some of the women come. Paul, Paulina is quite well-to-do. She founds a monastery for him, and three convents for women to live in. Mm-hmm. And this is in the Bethlehem area. 
And it is there that he begins his translation uh, of the Old Testament, which is the harder one. Now, if you remember the good old Pharisees, they had an Old Testament, but it was had to be written in Hebrew or mm-hmm. they didn't really count it. But a yep. lot of this stuff was in Greek. And he begins to translate all of it mm-hmm. into Latin. And he's always writing letters to people, and these translations are being mailed out. Mm-hmm. So his works are kind of well-known. And he continues this. He dies around 420. He lives in a cave, so it is said. If you take a look at this month's Magnificat, there's a reproduction of a famous painting of him mm-hmm. in the cave. And there you will see some animals. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not sure the symbolism of that. You do mm-hmm. not see the women that uh, helped him out. Anyway, those are just a, a thumbnail sketch of his life. Yeah, John, as it relates to the animals, usually you see a lion in some of the art there with St. Jerome. The lion is kind of the legendary companion of his, you know, guarding access to the cave he was riding or guarding access to uh, his chamber. As you were talking there, John, there were a number of other points that kind of struck me by way of reflection. He has this conversion, and then he really embraces the ascetic life. He embraces uh, these fervent Christian friends. He embraces this call to to go on pilgrimage. He, of course, embraces the study of the um, covenantal documents, we'll call them. We'll get more into that in a little bit, sacred scripture. Why do I talk about this? Because what Jerome does pretty quickly, especially post-dream, John, is he he really establishes a Christian sensibility. And to some degree, for you and I and all of our listeners out there, wherever you may be or however you may be listening to this radio program, it's worth taking note that he embraces the ascetic life. He embraces the importance of friendship. He embraces uh, the call to, to journey to holy places. He embraces the study of the Word of God. This is how we mature and grow in the Christian faith. Exactly. And, and I think, you know, these are points that then maybe can go lost, but... When you look at the life of a saint and, and all that they accomplished, and, and Jerome, like the many we've talked about, were prodigious in what they had accomplished and what they had written, it stems from something, a relationship that was built up over time, and, and that can never be um, overstated. Yes, did he have his cross? Did he speak out of turn? Did he challenge? I mean, you said it. Uh, he studied under the St. Gregory's, we'll call them, uh, mm-hmm. Origen. He had some choice words for all three of them. He had some very strong words for one Augustine we'll talk about in a couple weeks, calling yes. him insincere. I mean, <laughs> he was very uh, strong and to some degree not only over the top, but part of the reason why he was ostracized is because he was looked at as someone maybe just a little too much over the top. The only anecdote that I was able to find of his caustic personality was there was a gentleman he didn't like who had a rather large nose, and he didn't like his writings either, <laughs> and he made a comment. You know, if this guy could cover his face and not say anything, he might be thought to be both handsome and wise. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's a way to win friends and influence people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, there you go. That's right. Well, and, and you know, we talk about this because when we talk about just not the Church Fathers and, and the saints, it's mindful to to talk a little bit about their humanity, about their weaknesses, that this was his cross. Uh, and mm-hmm. But in saying that, you know, it, it, this was part of his nature, he... <laughs> He also used it for the good, you know. He also mm-hmm. used it for, for something that was extraordinary for God. Uh, there's a, a poet, I want to find something here. You're going to have to give me a minute as I'm talking about this, John. Well, um, why, why, look for that. If you have a copy of the Magnificat, at the end of uh, September the 30th, his feast day, there is a beautiful uh, one-page uh, little piece he wrote about the psalm about uh, 
those of us who are in Babylon, let, let our right hand not forget it. Let us not right hand not forget you. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Mm, amen. So, so this is <laughs> this is something that comes from the poet Phyllis McGinley. Uh, so she's writing about Saint Jerome. She says this: God's angry man, his crotchety scholar, was Saint Jerome, the great name caller, who cared not a dime for the laws of libel, and in his spare time translated the Bible. She concludes with a little caveat here. He served his master, though with complaint, he wasn't a plaster sort of saint. You know, (laughs) kind of uh, our eccentric uncle, as one teacher said of St. Jerome. John, I thought it would be important for us, as we talk about the importance of sacred scripture, you had noted he translated the, the, the Hebrew and the Greek into Latin, and we call that the Latin Vulgate. Um, which is one of the great accomplishments of not only St. Jerome, but of, of the Church Fathers, it would be good to talk about the coming together of the New Testament. And I know we've touched upon this before, but I wanted to maybe offer up some extended reflection upon this now. When we talk about the canon of the New Testament, we must first remember those words from Mark fourteen twenty four, John, when Christ says, this is the blood of the New Covenant. Again, the Greek word for covenant is diatheke, right? This is what was later translated in the Latin as testamentum. Diatheke translates to testament, essentially. This is why when we say Old Testament and New Testament, we can also say Old Covenant and New Covenant. Now, why is this important? Because when the phrase New Testament was used in the first few centuries, it was not synonymous with a book. It was synonymous with Christ's blood, because what did he say? This is the blood of the new covenant. This is the blood, John, of the New Testament. So we, we ask the question, you know, where is the New Testament, Joe or John, in the Mass? Wrong question. The Mass is the New Testament. This is why in the fourth century, what you have is a collection of books that over the course of four centuries, certainly, of course, uh, the Gospels and Paul's epistles, along with, you know, James and Peter, they are being read where? During the Mass, right? Because what was the Mass? The Mass was the liturgy. This is where you remember me. So the writings about Jesus Christ were being read during the Mass. So then the authoritative documents of the first Christian church were literally called the incovenanted documents, the covenantal documents. Again, mindful that the word covenant is not a term that is just a compact agreement. This is yours and this is mine. In God's language, it is, I am yours and you are mine. Because in God's language, it's not an exchange of things, but an exchange of persons. This mutual reciprocity I belong to you, you belong to me. This is the stuff of covenant. This is the stuff of the Gospels and the Epistles. And this is what was being read during the Mass, during the Eucharistic sacrifice. And so those authoritative documents were the only documents kept in God's presence in the sanctuary for the purpose of liturgical remembrance. They were the only texts that could be proclaimed in the New Testament liturgy. Now we have some important words uh, from St. Athanasius that I was wanting to get to, John, as well as uh, this comes from Scott Hans were consuming the word, where he reflects upon what we're talking about now. And I just thought to, to read this excerpt would be important for our listening audience to appreciate 
what we're talking about now and the coming together definitively uh, the canon of the New Testament. Okay, Scott Hahn writes, the earliest complete record of the New Testament canon, exactly as we know it today, appears in A.D. 367 in the 39th Festal Letter of St. Athanasius of Alexandria, the most revered theologian of his century. Then he lists the 27 books exactly as they are today, not missing one. Mm-hmm. St. Athanasius closes his list with these words. These are the fountains of salvation, that he who thirsts may be satisfied with the living words they contain. And these alone, the teachings of godliness is proclaimed, that no one add to these, that nothing be taken away from them. Yeah, and he goes on to say, uh, just as important really, that though not all the early uh, lists agree in every detail, they do show forth a consensus of Christians throughout the world. So what St. Athanasius decreed in 367 soon found confirmation, uh, John, in the synods of Rome in 382, Hippo uh, in 393, and Carthage in 419. And really, that council in Carthage in 419 is the ratification of the New Testament, if you will. Also important to note that Athanasius met no apparent opposition. The councils reached their decisions without any evident uh, confusion or rancor. So definitively speaking, by the year 419 AD, we have definitively, as we know it today, the 27 books in the New Testament as we understand the New Testament today. Very relevant. You may notice that Hippo and Carthage are both uh, on the south side of the Mediterranean. Rome approved of those lists. Without Rome's approval, it would not have been the case. Yes. Yeah. There's no doubt that those are those are the books. If I may just throw a little bit of thing in, in 144 A.D., a list was discovered in Rome, uh, which is extant in libraries today, in which it lists not books of the New Testament because that wasn't that word was not tossed around exactly, there, but it had most of the books, not all of them, and a couple of that were not included, the letter of the Shepherd of Hermes or something, mm-hmm. and uh, but these were books that were read at mass. And in fact, the Catholic Mass to this day is divided in two. First half, Liturgy of the Word. Mm-hmm. We read Scripture. That's right. Where Again, Liturgy of the Word, Liturgy of the Eucharist. In Liturgy of the Word, Christ is truly present. We forget yeah. that part, you know, John, where, of course, we know, yeah, Liturgy of the Eucharist, Christ is made present on the altar. Christ is truly present in the Word of God. And that is so important for us, as it was so important to St. Jerome, John, and it was really what was at the heart of, of what he was about, that endeavor that he took up in translating the Old and New. And of course, as we talk about St. Jerome, we would be remiss to not quote that great quote, ignorance of scriptures is ignorance of Christ. And in so many ways, we look to St. Jerome to be reminded, John, that the Word of God is both personal and at once communal. We must approach scripture on a very personal level. We must not look at it as something of the past, like we would be dissecting a corpse. You know, it is alive and well. And as we approach Scripture in that way and we personalize Scripture, what we will discover, John, and we will discover it concretely, that when we read sacred Scripture each and every day, it will begin to enliven and animate who we are. It will begin to enliven and animate what we do. What we will discover is that it will shape and form our personal relationships. It will shape and form what we do in the workforce because sacred scripture is the word of God and it is all-encompassing. That being said, 
it is also communal. What we're talking about right now is the New Testament that comes to us in and through the church, okay? Just as God in his Trinity is personal and at once communal, so is the Word of God. And so for that reason, we are to look at Scripture as just not building up our personal relationship with Jesus Christ, but also the source that builds up the community uh, that we belong to, our local churches, uh, our, our local communities. This is very important, John, because I think, I was kind of reflecting upon this this morning, I think we've lost sight of that a little bit. We need to reinvigorate Scripture studies so as to reinvigorate just not our personal lives, but also, John, our communities and what we're doing and, and how we're shaping our communities into a more uh, Christian society that we've talked about so much um, on this radio program. Yeah, uh, and that is so important, Joe. And I want to remember that there are some people who don't find the Scriptures to be that authentic, uh, you know, thinking that there really wasn't a Christ, that somehow this is, was imagined, which is awfully, awfully difficult to prove historically. This stuff has been around for so long. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, once again, I think we've already repeated this before, there is a document from John's Gospel, A.D. 180-120, in a library, it's not very big, maybe about the size of a book cover, but in it is John's gospel, I think chapter whatever it is, and word for word, mm-hmm. it's still there. I mean, you know. Amen, and that's certainly important because when we talk about Scripture, we do approach it, um, yes, as this personal communion, uh, but also within that, within that context of it being historical and spiritual right? This is the literal sense and the spiritual sense. And so that literal sense is getting into the historical context of the sacred text so as to better appreciate the sacred text. Its relevance as it concerns history is very important. And what one scholar after another who's really willing to do their homework comes to conclude is that, yeah, I mean, this is, this is uh, the real stuff. And, you know, John, as, as we talk about this, we must be mindful of Christ's words. You know, lo, I will be with you always. Well, how is he going to be with us always? Well, he's going to send us the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it is the Holy Spirit that inspires these human authors. Just as Christ is fully human and fully divine, so is the biblical text, sacred scripture, fully human and fully divine, as these human authors were inspired and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. St. Jerome had a lot of documents that he used. He was pretty close to this time. I'll grant it, he was a few hundred years removed. But he didn't find anything phony about any of this stuff. It mm-hmm. was right there, and, uh, and he took it very seriously. That's right, John. And because he took sacred scripture so seriously, he was led and inspired himself to do many great things, many things that we have yet to talk about. So I don't know if I mentioned this in the opening, but uh, with this great figure, St. Jerome, with this towering figure of St. Jerome, we will have a second week with him so we can talk more about what he did Um, and that'll afford us to really round out this saint quite nicely. So with that, John, let us go ahead and close with prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, 
The website is joeholcraft.org.